Welcome to the Built Not Born podcast presented by Edge Leadership Academy. I'm your host and founder of Edge Leadership Academy, David Kitchen, and together we're going to spend some time with some of the top leaders in their fields to figure out what built them into the leaders they are today and what we can take away from their journey. Thanks for joining me on the show. If you like what you hear, please like, share, leave a review so we can continue to reach as many aspiring leaders as possible. Also, be sure to join us on our website, www.edgeleadershipacademy.com, for access to all of our free content and resources for leaders and those wanting to be leaders. And be sure to give us a follow on social media so we can keep the conversation going. I'm fired up to be part of this project, and I'm looking forward to diving into this conversation. Leaders are built, not born. guys welcome to another episode of the built not born podcast we are here with a very special guest someone that's had a big impact on me and the way i lead uh the way i live my life and he's he's a great mentor great resource for you guys so we're here with sean, coach sean Manuel today so coach manny i'm going to turn it right over to you man i know you're going to drop all types of nuggets so go ahead and take a second introduce yourself and then we'll start ripping come on man hey awesome to be here with you dave id kitchen i love this dude all right Couple of things. Good to be connecting. Uh, background a little bit. Uh, I'll keep it brief. My college career uh, coming out of high school, I had a one seven, so I, I didn't qualify. Went to junior college. Taught me a lot of things about prioritizing. What do you find important? You know, self discipline. There's just a number of different things I picked up from that. But going from there, from the junior college, I got together, got my grades there. I went to New Mexico State University. Was fortunate enough to go there with my brother, you know, so full ride scholarship. From there, I got drafted to the Niners in 1996. I had a cup of tea in the NFL. I was, you know, uh, Niners, then over at the Chiefs. I was hurt the majority of the time. Uh, I, like I always say, I was, I was glad they let me stay as long as I did with the amount of injury I had and the number of different things that went on with me personally, even maturity wise. Uh, I came out of there, I went into coaching and I grew up in a, a coaching family. My, my mom uh, was from a sports family my uncle was is a you know hall of fame california high school hall of fame coach uh, my cousin will be too uh we all grew up together you know listening watching you know and, and you know it was interesting because i went into coaching finally i was like ah, let me go do this when i got there I went oh no wonder they coach this is just a natural knack uh they come out here and want to see people get better and then it made me realize oh this is why they've done it why they're so good and this is kind of how we're wired right so from there i went to a high school coach with one of my childhood best friends, Tony Sanchez. Uh, we did a really good job there. We moved on to Bishop Gorman High School. We Bishop Gorman High School for nine years, uh, won three national titles, you know, team of the decade, all these different things. I uh, went 45 and 0. And then from there, Coach Sanchez got a job, Division One. He's like the third guy in the history of, you know, and you know, Division One football to get. Uh, the head coaching job out of high school. So we went over to UNLV. That's where me and Big Kitch met. We were there for three years. They let the whole staff go. Uh, and now I'm over as an executive leader of performance at IHP, which is the Institute of Human Performance. And uh, loving what I do over there. It's in the private sector. I'm learning a lot, even in terms of building business and so forth. But that's a little bit about my background. That's awesome. uh, in terms of my education, I got a degree in psychology. So my degree in psychology, I went on, so funny, I was sitting down with the UNLV head coach when we were interviewing and he looked at my resume, he was like, hey, uh, what's your qualifications? I was like, you're looking at my resume, I got a psych degree. He was like, yeah, so how'd you get in this uh, kind of deal? And it was kind of a laugh moment, right? But I have a CSCS, FMS certified, corrective exercise special certified, NASM nutrition, uh, you know, specialist, MMA specialist certification. You know, I got a, all these different certifications in these fields in terms of postural control, functional movement pattern, which is a big one to me. Um, and then, you know, performance enhancement, obviously that's our job. Injury resistance, which is like really at the end of the day is like our biggest job. So anyway, that's a little bit about my background, you know, my education, where I come from, kind of my journey a little bit, just to get us kicked off. And I think the, the cool thing about you, coaches, is you have such a varied kind of basket of experiences. And I think that's that's something that we got to dig into as we get going here. So I want to take it back to the roots, man, back back to the California days, back to Richmond. Um, let's talk a little bit. You know, I think every leader has somebody in their life that is is just the influence and is the driver. 
Um, and for you, you know, you mentioned your family. So I'd love to know who was your biggest influence and kind of what values did you take from them that now you see in yourself? Oh, always hands down. Biggest influence in my life, my mom. Uh, she's Sicilian, iron, Sicilian, Italian. Strongest person I've ever been around. Never seen a person that strong, that tough. We were growing up, <clears throat> her biggest expectation is, hey, you take responsibility and you're tough. You got those two things. Uh, the biggest things I took away from her was, hey, you, you work hard and you love people. And she would always say, hey, we're not like those people. And I'd be like, like what people? And it was like, hey, we're not like those animals out there. And she, you know, they call them animales, right? And we're not like them. We don't act like that. We don't start fighting over who's going to get what and, and these other things, just to let them have it. You know, we love people. We take care of people. And it was the big example. I've never seen somebody so benevolent. Mm -hmm. We had five kids living with us in high school. The food bill in the 90s. Like five hundred dollars a month, I mean five hundred dollars a week. She was running like two thousand dollars a month, right? And you're like, what was she running a boys' home? That was her benevolence. You know, you, you you didn't upgrade into a house. You didn't get new vehicles. You didn't do these other different things. You you worked to love people. I mean, she she would lose like two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars a year in billing because she wouldn't bill people. Right. They can't afford it. The insurance is messing with them. So you know what I'm gonna do? Don't worry about it. And don't talk to me about it either. It's okay, just, just leave it. She worked 16 hour a day. She'd cook in the morning, make us food. And then she'd leave 16 hours, come back, clean everything up and then do it again the next day. If she wasn't there, we wouldn't have ever made it through. I didn't have the discipline. She was the will and the fight that drove us through until things kind of clicked for us. We gained a certain level of maturity finally. And then we're like, oh, this is what she's doing. So when you say, who's the biggest influence? She was hands down the biggest influence in my life and still is the single-handed, most um, the toughest person, uh, the most uh, benevolent person. And you know, the, the, at the end of the day, the person who I watched that went, hey, there, there isn't failure if you just keep trying. There isn't, you don't look at it this way, it's how much do you love and that takes care of the rest. And so when I say, hey, you're not going to do something, you go learn to do what it takes. She was, a, I'm going to do whatever it takes. At the end of the day, take care of you guys to do these different things to provide to get you through. And like I said, I, I picked that up from her. It was an iron will, right? She'd also knock you for a looper now. <laughs> don't, get, don't get it twisted. Uh, she, that's, she, that's the Italian she, mother, man. You got to Oh, Italian she knocked mother. me for a looper now. <laughs> when I say iron, she was iron. Right? So anyway, that's the biggest influence for me. And, and the biggest things I take from that coach are, are, you know, she's definitely, like you said, tough and there's this iron will, but it was almost from a place of adding value to everybody else. So it sounds like from a young age, you were kind of taught that you're going to be tough so that you can add value. Like it's one so that the other is the means to the end, um, the ends to the means, you know, and vice versa. And, and it's figuring out that, you know, by you having discipline and you being tough, you're able to provide for the people that matter. And, and I think that's such an awesome message, man. That's awesome. You just nailed it too. Just, you have to be resilient to be loving. That was what she taught me. You have to be able to recover from a mistake or from hurt or you have to learn how to recover quickly if you're going to love people, right? And you're going to remain vulnerable to loving people. And when I say it takes an immense amount of vulnerability to love people uh, as a character trait, right? From who you are. And in order to do that, you have to develop a level of resilience, a, a, a level of snapback, a level of, okay, I got to let that go. got to forgive you. Let's work back through this. You're not going to distort the way I feel and think about things or my principle, you know, that kind of thing. I watched her embody that. She never said it, but as I got older, what you just said nailed it. It's like, hey, you got to be tough. You got to be resilient to stay in this kind of position. I love it. No, it, and that 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 leads us completely into this next topic because it's it's something that I think is is a huge part of exactly what you just said. Like you said, okay, no matter what happens, you're not going to distort the way I see things or think about things. That requires a level of discipline, right? And I know this is one of your favorite topics. Um, so I, I want to talk about discipline, man. Let, let's talk about the impact of having discipline in your life. And I know you're, you're always very vulnerable and open and willing to discuss things. So I want to hear how does having discipline translate to success and how have you seen it? Cause I believe success leaves clues. So how, how, what clues have you seen through having discipline that kind of led to the success you've had? Oh man, this is a big one and really good. Okay. So starting out in high school, right? I didn't go to class. 
I chased gals and I, you know, I chased women or young ladies. It was more important to me. I really didn't get it. It was like, hey, I'm just up here for a social event. How do I get through these classes, right? And it was even to the point where I was like in an honor level classes for like English. And by the time we got to our sophomore year, I said, I think this, they, you know, the school's like, I think this guy's really a dummy. I don't think he should be in those classes. They moved me down to the lowest class. And I was like, we got like dog chases cat up in here. What's going on? Like, what'd they just do with me? <laughs> I got put into the, this really, and I was like, okay. I didn't, and my mom was like, this is shameful. She was, you know, magnum cum laude. She was out of Columbia University. She, you know, first women's class out, you know, get a master's out of there. So she's like, what is wrong with you? You're like my kid? Uh, and I was like, I'm disinterested. Like, I don't care. And really what it was, I just lacked discipline, right? And so I go to junior college, I have a one seven. Every time I look at my life at these turning points, the biggest area for me that would break down wasn't my talent. It was my character. And what I started to realize was character is built through discipline. Discipline to what? Discipline to holding to universal principles, laws of effectiveness. These principles are guidelines. And the more you hold them, the more they build your life, the more they make you effective at anything you're a part of, relationship, parenting, coaching. It doesn't matter. The principles run universally through every facet of life. And it took me a while to kind of catch on to that and to see it. When I was at the Niners, I quit, right? I, tell, I say this stuff all the time. The, the breakdown wasn't, oh, you cut my brother, you know, I'm leaving these other things. As I reflect, I go, the breakdown was in my character. I lacked a certain ability, a certain resilience. I lacked a certain ability to gain perspective in the moment and see the big picture. I wasn't principle-based, I was feeling-based. And this is how I feel right now, therefore this is what I'm doing. Well, feelings will betray you. Feelings are momentary. <clears throat> it's how you feel in the moment, right? Making decisions according to principle takes discipline because it means even when that principle seems to not get you what you want in the moment, it's really helping you become who you want most at the end of it all. And you use the word success. For me, when you're, when you're, when you're talking about success, really you're talking about what is your aim? Mm -hmm. And I can't always get the job I want. You can hear people talk. It's always going to be, you always do it's not always a meritocracy. Like it's not always based on merit, right? So I, am I gonna only work hard because I think I'm going to get this? And is this always gonna define my level of success, who I am, what I'm a part of? Uh, no, what am I aimed at? And a level of success for me start to become who am I as a person and who am I becoming? What is my character? And that changed my life. And like what you said, I went, oh, you know, I'm self-indulgent. I need to really work on becoming more disciplined. I need to commit to excellence, not image. You know, I need to commit to caring about people, not painting pictures, you know, of, of what I want people to think I am and getting the world around me to feel a certain way and saying the right things and doing the right things to get in the right social settings. And that's success. And I'm going, no success is committing to who I am as a person and growing in these principles that not only build my life, but build the lives of those around me. And that's how, you know, you know, all the time people say, Hey, you know, you're a good guy. You know, you love God. And I see you do these different things. And I say, number one, I'm not a good guy. Now I mean that I'm not saying I'm not a good guy. <laughs> uh, my wife can tell you that my kids too. So I, what I'm committed to though, you know, when they say, Hey, what about God? I go, Hey, you know, I'm committed to learning to love God, right? It isn't, you, you love God, you, you know. Here's the other thing too. Me loving God, I'm not doing God any favors. Right. This is not how this thing works. I go, me learning to love God is me protecting myself. It's selfish in its nature. Because I do that, I become better equipped. So it's not about whether I'm selfish or unselfish. Most of our aims are selfish. It's whether the aim I have doesn't just build my life, it builds the lives of those around me. And if I make that my aim, then I'm successful because not only did I build my life, but what I did also helped those around me. And I can look and go, hey, this kind of self-care, right, takes discipline. And so I always tell people the same thing. When you talk about discipline, right, in Hebrews, I always reference these things, Hebrews 12 or 6, 
it says the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so for me, always, I, when I look at that scripture, I realize, oh, love and discipline go hand in hand. If I love people, then when I say discipline, I'm going to hold them accountable. I'm going to tell them the truth, even when it gets confrontational, or it's uncomfortable. I'm going to commit to these principles that are really loving, but it takes discipline to do that because sometimes you don't want to say certain things or sometimes you don't want to hear certain truths with yourself, right? But if you love yourself, then you'll discipline yourself. And then I realize hey, love and discipline go hand in hand. And if I love people, then I'm going to exert a certain level of discipline. If I love myself, I'm going to exert that same discipline. And then a lot of times what happens is we don't understand what it really means to value ourselves. And valuing yourself means you're self-caring. If you're self-caring, it means you're self-disciplined. It means you're very measured in your actions in terms of what you're doing with yourself and with those around you. And you're going, hey, when I commit to these behaviors, there's going to be these issues. And then this is the thing. As long as I self-correct when I see that I'm wrong, the action is still loving because you go, hey, I'm making every effort. I'm doing the best I can. Sure, I'm human. I mess up. But when I see this, I have the discipline to address it, to accept it, and to move forward soberly, right? And not judge myself. Uh, I'm not a bad person because I messed up. I'm human. You know, I'm going to make mistakes. That's fine. I'm going to say I make mistakes, right? So like, say when I left the Niners, I had to self-correct and go, hey, dude, are you going to play this game or is it going to be about your feelings and your emotions? You realize this now. You just cracked. You need to get committed to building your character. Your problem is your aim. You think success is you achieving being on the team, being a pro bowler, doing these other things, and that everything hinges upon my performance. And it's not, it's about relationship, not about performance. And the reason why you keep falling apart in this thing is because you think life is about a big performance. And you, you, you know, you performing and you showing well and people admiring you and you having this esteem. And this is the thing, sometimes you're not going to feel good about yourself. You know, self-esteem is the feeling of being esteemed before others, right? And so it's a feeling of, hey, I have value in front of others. And I go, the value is created in you from the inside out in terms of who you become, because when I become a more loving person. When I become a hardworking person. When I become a person of integrity. I'm better at influencing and impacting the community around me. I'm better at setting an example to do that. And I'm not doing it for setting the example's sake. I'm doing it because it's what I need to be committed to in and of myself as a person. And in order to do that, it means I have to have discipline, coaching. I know I can coach. I'm, I'm not always going to get jobs. I'm going to feel a certain level of rejection, regardless of my competency and my proficiency level. Normal. Discipline is going, yeah, I'm not this way to get that job. I'm not this way to do these different things. And even though I may not feel great about myself or didn't, I'm disappointed about how these things turned out, what's my decision? Yeah, I forget it. The whole world's like this. You know, it's about me now. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Or do I stop and go, no, dude, no matter what, you protect yourself through this discipline because other people act a certain way doesn't mean you change who you are. That means that people are defining you and life is being decided for you from the outside in. If you want true control of your life, you sit down, you take responsibility, the discipline and responsibility. I'm going to become response able no matter what life does to me, no matter how it treats me. I'm going to respond according to these principles. I'm going to discipline myself even when it costs me. And it's cost me jobs at times, right? Going on, been super honest, been straightforward. People are like, we can't use you. You know, sometimes you walk into things and you're principal centered and people go, hey, listen, I got to be able to influence you. Sometimes we're going to go in these other directions. So I need to be able to influence you. And if you don't let me influence you, I can't bring you in here. And it's totally normal. And that's, that's okay. It's not like it's a bad deal. And I go, hey, this principal is still going to influence me more. And like, yeah, we, we could see that. You know, <laughs> hey, we're not, this is not going to be a fit. Right. And I go, oh, okay. Wow, I would have really liked the job. I would really like to be in this situation, but I'm not going to get it. But if between getting that and letting go of my principle, <laughs> I'm going to hold on to my principle because my principle protects me long-term, my character, and my family. And let me tell you something. When you talk about being vulnerable, I was a monster. And I still, I still got monster in me, right? I got Hulk. My kids the other day were like, Daddy, you get like the Hulk sometimes. <laughs> like, mad like that. That's the Hulk. And I was like, yeah, Daddy really tries to keep that away. <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> Whole cities have been destroyed. And, and <laughs> if daddy wakes up and he's really sorry at the end of it, right? But going in, I was a womanizer. You know, I, I, women were something to be used and for my esteem. And I didn't want to get close. I didn't want to be vulnerable. Uh, I didn't want to be hurt. And so I went, hey, I'm going to live in this bubble where I'll use you. You give me esteem and these other things, but I'll never get connected to you, right? 
and they get really twisted because you, you have five gals that you're dating. They're all over the place and people think you're a stud because of the, the accolades. Oh, it's Miss Hawaii or it's Miss this or it's, it's these different people that like you or their relationship. And all you're thinking is I'm terribly alone. I can't be close to anybody. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die a lonely old man. <laughs> Meanwhile, you think from the outside, when you look in, I have it all together because I have these situations, but really, I don't know how to commit to a woman. I'm broken and I don't know how to love. In order to do that, I got to let down the shield and be vulnerable. Well, I'm not capable of that in and of myself. There has to be something higher than I'm connected to, right? And so this process of, hey, I'm going to have to change this element myself, I realize I'm going to have to discipline myself according to these principles. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't just end because you, you stop there, right? My life to this day, I still discipline myself because if I don't, that monster still exists. It's not like he just goes away. <laughs> it's like you treat the guy like a, like a disease, man. And, you know, Jeremiah 79, this is the hardest deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it, right? And so I go, when it says beyond cure, anything beyond cure means it has to be constantly treated. You got to treat that thing on a daily basis. Otherwise, you know, like blade, man, you don't take that injection. You're like, I got to go feed, <laughs> eat on something. <laughs> and so for me, the discipline is continued where I go, hey, I see how far I've been brought, not because of people say it or anything else outside of me. I go, oh, good, man. On the inside, I feel the way I want to feel. And I'm clear in my conscience, not that I'm innocent, but I'm clear in my conscience that I'm making every effort this way. And man, there's a piece that I have with that that I never had before. And so now when I pursue it, I pursue that piece. Again, it's selfish, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm also sober enough to understand that I need that, that support. I need that help, you know, that, that higher power. I need those different things. And that, that bigger picture allows me to maintain discipline because discipline in and of itself, when you're white knuckling, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm always going to go do it. <laughs> I can only do this for so long before I'm like, ah. Sorry, I'm sorry, everybody. I had to, you know, you're, that just doesn't work. Replacing the old thinking with the new thinking is the only way and you have to constantly add to it. It's like the muscle, it'll atrophy if you don't. And so the discipline is I have to go in daily and commit to this. You know, there's two different ones in, um, in Hebrews five, you go down in seven and then all the way down to the end of the chapter. It talks about you know, uh, and not, not religiously, but it, it's talking about how people learn and how, you know, in particularly Christ in that particular passage learned obedience through what he suffered. Like he learned obedience because he had to hold the principle and that once he did it, perfected him, it completed him in love. Right. And then it goes down a little bit later and it says, you know, but solid food is for the mature, like telling people higher principles sometimes is, is futile because they don't know the lower principle. Right or they don't know the base principle, the basics. Like telling a guy about rate of force development when he, he doesn't even know about proper squat pattern or these other different things, you know, you, you jump some steps there, right? And it says, it says, but the people become mature who through constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between what is good and what is bad. The consistent use. And when you talk about consistent use, training your, your character and, and being disciplined is a daily endeavor. It's bit by bit day by day, painstaking, grueling application of a principle that over a period of time habituates you to the behavior. And Aristotle talks about all the time, hey, listen, if a guy wants to become brave, he has to do brave things in the face of very dangerous circumstances, situations that make him afraid. And as he sits down, he sustains this ability to commit to this principle, right? Underneath these circumstances, and there's a multiple level of circumstances you, you sustain under that the phenomenon of habituation happens. He no longer does it to become anymore. He does it because that's who he is now. And that's the only way he knows how to respond because that's how he's trained himself to do it. And when we talk about these discipline and principles, discipline is the tool that allows you to internalize the principle and, and hold to the principle. And it's things like sacrificing the pursuit of your own excellence. Hey, if I make these decisions, I'm not, I'm not going to punish you, right, by hurting myself. <laughs> I'm going to show you I'm just not going to work as hard. You want to treat me like that at work? Good. I'm just pulling back. I'm just not motivated to work. And you're like, hey, who's that hurting? <laughs> you're hurting yourself. Hey, I'm not going to lead anymore. I made this mistake. Whoa, whoa. You were given the responsibility of leadership. Mistake, not mistake. It doesn't matter. 
Sure, it's going to shake you for a minute, but hey, you still have a responsibility. Right. This one's going to make you recommit. No, at the end of the day, I made a mistake. I got to get going again. And what I'm developing in this process is resilience. And I need, I got to be able to recover from a mistake. And that's one of the hardest things I have. I make a mistake. Oh, that's the end of the world. The kid broke his foot. I'm retiring. I'll never coach again. I'm finished. Everyone's like, can you relax? And I was like, nah, man, I just can't stand it. And they're like, dude, learn how to suffer the setbacks like everybody else and maintain. And my mom, listen, my mom, I'm driving home. <laughs> Monday night, Green Bay game, Packers. Biggest game of the year. Who's going to be number one in the NFL? This is probably going to predict who's going to the Super Bowl. And I'm out and the coach tells me, the night before, Coach George Stewart, special teams coach. You know, he's over at the Chargers now. Awesome dude. He's like, hey, man. Manuals, the night before. Listen, when he comes down, this guy's going to be a little slick. Don't clip him. And I was like, okay, okay. No, no, don't clip him. He goes on a three-minute, just don't clip him. Don't clip this dude. And I'm like, man, I got it. Finally, Kenny Norton tells him, hey, coach, come on, coach. Let it go, man. Move on. He's like, all right, but I'm just telling you, don't clip it, man. What do you think I did the first kickoff? Kick return of the game. Clipping 15 <laughs> I yards. The mess out of him. <laughs> I hit him in the back. I was like, I hope no one saw that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm coming off the sidelines. And the whole team was in the meeting. So like, dude, this guy just screamed at you for four minutes and said, don't clip him. I almost think you did it because he said it. <laughs> and I'm, now I'm on the bench going, I have to collect myself. I have to figure out why this guy just talked to me for four minutes in a meeting, me only. He said, don't clip the guy, and I want to clip the guy. If I can't do something, he just told me, I'm done. I can't do this. Obviously, I got a problem. I'm broke. You know, for me, resilience. I just, so I get in the car. Now, I go down and, and tackle Desmond Howard twice on special teams, right? And, and do all these other different, and I go um, some blocks and some other different things, and I go, do you think I thought about any of that stuff? <laughs> Guys are like, hey, this is a really good job. Hey, you got off the ball against this linebacker, Wayne Simmons, who no one gets off the ball with. He had to grab you downfield and throw you down and he got a flag for it, right? He goes, man, but you got off the ball on the guy. Man, 90% of the NFL hasn't got off the ball on this guy. And I was like, no, nah, man, I clipped the guy after he told me, right? So <laughs> I'm saying this because I get in the car and afterwards you fly home, it's a, you know, you get done with the game at midnight, right? You, you fly home, but we had to fly back to the West Coast. So we get in, my mom's picking me up, right? From the airport, my mom, you know, my world. And we're in the car and I'm like, nah, I messed up. And it's this and it's that. And she's listening to me for about two minutes. She's like, hey, son, listen, you need to grow up. <laughs> you need to get over it. You're real, you know what the problem is, Sean? You're really good when everyone's patting you on the back. But the minute you get kicked in the seat of your pants, you fall apart. You just, the minute things don't go a certain way for you, you're like, oh, it's the end. You can't even recognize all the other stuff. Come on, shake it off, grow up. You know, you know, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but my mom had that edge and she's like, be a man, but she said it a different way. Right. You know, like, <laughs> so now I'm sitting in the car. I'll never forget. I'm staring straight at I'm like, I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm done. I should have known better than to have this conversation with you. The old truth shooter over here. Um, but what she was basically telling me is, dude, you got to learn to get resilient. And she showed me it. She'd overcome cancer. She had twice, you know, I watched how she dealt with ALS when we were taking care of her. She lived in my home and I watched her. She was going out and she was strangling to death and she was suffocating. And she's like, no, no, I'm going to be the same person. You don't commit. You don't break. I'm going to, and then watch, I'm going to fight to the end. I'm going to suction my mouth every 15 seconds. I'm going to do this. Hey, walk me around, get me out of bed. I mean, she was in the process of passing, like she was going. I was picking her up and putting her in and out of the bed probably 10 times every, you know, within an hour. Cause she was like, let's go again. And I was like, you want, so I was sitting there. I go, you want me to get you up? She's like, yeah. At a certain point, the house on my wife, my, and, and the, the caretakers were like, Sean, you can't keep picking her up. And I was like, nah, she wants to fight. We're going to fight. That's what we do. That's it. And I'm watching her. I'm going, come on, let's get it. All right, here, put her in the chair, put her back in the bed. I put her in the chair. I put her, and we just keep going. It's like ping pong. I was like, how long are you going to do this? Like, you're going to hurt your back in a minute. Like, this is going to happen. And I was like, nah, until she says, she's, you know, until she says, no, I'm good now. Yeah. Sometimes we go for two hours. And I was like, I'm going to pick her up as many times as she wants. This is what we do. I say that because I go, that was the epitome of the things that I saw. And I realized she was saying, hey, dude, you got to get tough. You got to be resilient. Well, it takes discipline to do that.
Right. Like when you're self-indulgent, you're just giving to how you feel. I'm just going to give myself an excuse. I'm going to go do this because I want to versus going, nah, dude, you're going to suffer deeply. And the gap between who you are and who you want to be, that gap is suffering. It's discomfort. And you have to sit in it until you become who you want. That takes the effort of your attention. That's willpower. The willpower is just my ability to center the effort of my attention and center it on an object until either I or the object bends to the shape that is necessary for me to become who it is I want to become. Woo! I learn how to hold into that. I learned sitting in that. Then anything becomes possible in terms of who I become as a person, not obtain because life happens. You get sick. These things happen. Life throws you all these curveballs. That's not the point, but you'll always be successful if your character and who you become as a person is the aim, because that's the one thing you control. No one can take it. In Romans five, verse three, it says, Hey, listen, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character gives you the ultimate hope, character, hope. And it's saying, hey, do you want to have an unshakable hope? Build an incredible character. Because your character cannot be taken. It's built from the inside out, not the outside in. And no one can take that from you. You can just give it away. And a lot of times we think that people are taking something away, but it's not. We're really giving it away because we haven't made a decision to take responsibility. And once again, we're talking about discipline. You know, hey, learn how to be this one. So once I made that connection, we're, we talked about it and I went on monologue in here, but I go, the discipline is the thing that once I identified and it went, oh, this is it. I need to hold on to this, but not discipline for the sake of discipline. There's a higher purpose and calling for the discipline. Discipline is the tool I will use to build this bigger quality. And this bigger quality is love, right? And so people say, God, Jesus Christ, and everyone Nowadays, everyone freaks out about religion, these other things. I don't believe in religion personally, not religion in and of itself, right? I do believe in the principles. And when I see Bible, um, you name it, these different aspects, I see principle. And I see people that live by principle. And I see them adhere to it, even though it costs them their life. Right. And when I see that, I go, oh, that's how committed to it they were. They wouldn't kill me. And that through that level of discipline, what they were able to do is impact the world in an incredible way. And have a tremendous amount of impact. So that's what I see when I do it. And as a coach, that's what we want to do. We want to have impact. And so I go, hey, it lies at discipline. People maximizing their talent. And that's my job is to help people maximize their talent will depend on their level of discipline. Right. So how valuable is it? And that's why I always talk about it. Man, coach, you got me fired up over here. I, I'll give you the three big takeaways that I took from that. The first one is everything you talked about. It's the process, man. You become obsessed with your process. Like you stop worried about the outcomes. Like you, you were talking about all these different situations you've been through. And every time it went poorly was when you started to shift your focus to the outcome and you started to look at, oh no, this didn't play out the way I wanted it to. Versus if you lock back in and like you said, get out of nothing prematurely, like sit in the pressure, let it do its work, right? And then you get to where you want to be ultimately. But even when you get there, it might not be where you set out for. It might just be where you're supposed to be at that point because you followed the process and you stayed committed to the principles that you said these are what's important to me. So that, that to me is huge. And then the other big thing was every time you got off the path, it was learning that discipline is not a, a, a switch. It's not just going to change overnight. You don't just get this, this character. You don't build your character in one decision. It's understanding that, Hey, I am human. I'm going to stray, but how quickly can I get myself back to the path? So like you were talking about with the self-correction and those things. And I think sometimes that's where people miss, right? They, they say, okay, I'm going to be disciplined. And then all of a sudden that Ben and Jerry's calls and they eat a scoop of it. And then it turns into a pint. And then three days later, they've watched four seasons of Netflix and there's still, there's, a, there's Chinese containers everywhere. And they're like, I'll start on Monday. No, it's how quickly can you recognize and can you correct and get back to what you said you were committed to. But that takes what? The vulnerability to admit that, hey, I've strayed because I'm human. I've made XYZ decisions. Now I need to get back. So that that whole thing, guys, if anybody's listening to this, please go back, listen to that again, take notes, pay attention, because I promise you guys, if you do it, you will see parallels in your own life and you'll see parallels in the lives of people around you. And it will give you a much more clear perspective on what's going on. So coach, I listen, I, I love the monologue. So feel free. This is this is just as much about you as it is me. So please let it rip because you're sharing stuff that, that I think people need to hear. Um, you know, and you talked a lot about, decisions of, of, of emotional decisions versus principal decisions, right? And let, let's talk about that when we're talking leadership, like when we look at people, um, and so we'll use an example, like say, say a young man's not playing 
and he gets upset and he starts to make emotional decisions. So he starts showing up late to meetings, dogging it at practice, okay, all these different things. What are some things that somebody can use to kind of get away from those emotional decisions and get back to principle-based and, and this discipline decision? So kind of what's the reset process that people can use? I think one of the biggest things, and people have to be taught this. There's some people that are naturally like this. Would people and the athletes, you saw me when I was at UNLV, I did the same thing going, I do the same thing now. They have to prioritize developing self-awareness. And you go, hey, what can someone do to reset? What you do is, that's why I say being principle-centered, the biggest reset is constantly evaluating yourself and looking at your life and your principles, right? And in Timothy uh, 4.16, it says, hey, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, for if you do, you'll protect both yourself and your hearers, right? And saying, hey, what's your life like and what's your doctrine like? Well, self-awareness is being able to look at the two and not judge yourself and say, I'm horrible because of it. But it's, all, it's also able to say, hey, these are things that are good about me. These are bad about me. And I can hold on to the two. One gives me the confidence and the understanding of what I have to contribute. The other one makes me, leaves me sober and constantly aware of where I need to grow. The two together give me balance, like two wings on an airplane, right? Yep. I have to have a good grasp of that. So when someone comes in, you go, hey, how are you going to reset? What was your big picture focus? That's resetting. Okay, this was your big picture. You want, hypothetically, you wanted to be a starter. They didn't give you the starting job. All right, because they didn't give it to you in the moment, what's your decision going to be? All right, let's evaluate how you respond. You've responded by shutting down, not showing up to meetings, retracting, all these other things. Okay, let's look at your big picture again. Create some self-awareness here. How is that behavior going to get you to your big picture? Because your big picture was that you want to start, right? How does this help you get there? Oh, it doesn't. Okay, your emotion in the moment told you, hey, I'm going to punish you. And I'm just not going to show up to your meetings. I'm going to make you feel this way, coach. Like you're getting blown off. Like you're disrespected. Okay. You think you're punishing the coach, but what are you really doing? Who are you punishing at this point? Oh, 100%. Yourself. And you go, oh, to hurt him, you're going to punish yourself. Then you're going to get mad at him because you're like, you punished me by not giving me this. And so I'm going to teach you by punishing myself. And by committing these behaviors, they only make it hard, not only for me here, but any job I go into, any relationship I go into. Okay, how does that help you? Okay, it doesn't. Here's the thing. Let's walk through the decision-making process you got. You're not trying hard, which means the goal that you have, either two things are gonna happen. You're never gonna reach it, or someone's gonna get hurt. And listen, God forbid, they're gonna have to put you in. <laughs> when they put you in, you're not gonna be ready. <laughs> And then what's going to happen is you're going to hurt everybody now. And the consequence of your decision-making isn't just going to hurt you at this point. It's going to hurt the group around you and bring everyone down. And this is it only confirming to the group that didn't want to start you to begin with why they made the decision they did. So let's walk back through this process, develop some self-awareness. No matter what, you need to learn how to stay faithful to you. It means despite outcome, you need to stay committed to these principles. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to bust my butt and I'm going to give everything I got. And it's going to be disappointing if I don't get what I want. These things are going to happen. But the biggest thing I'm going to want is to learn how to have this integrity, to learn how to be a hard worker, because I can take those tools into anything I do and they'll still build my life. Right. If I take this, well, you did this and I'm going to punish you. I'm not going to go hard. I'm going to do this. Well, then you're going to have a hard time being successful at anything you do. The minute it gets hard and challenging, people don't give you what you want. So when you say, how would you walk somebody through the process? That's how I do it. I'd sit down and go, hey, let's build some self-awareness. This is how you're making decisions. This is the principle. Yeah. And All right, now I want you to write it down. I want you to create a journal and say, hey, why? That's what I was going to get at right there. It's finding the why, because I think a lot of people, um, you know, they sometimes they make decisions and they don't evaluate the decision-making process. Like they evaluate the decision itself, but not the process that led to it. And it's like, you're missing a key part of the equation because your intent matters. People always do what they intend to do, you know, and, and you can say whatever you want about that. But at the end of the day, people do what they intend to do. Their intentions are there. So let's, let's, why, why do you feel this way? Why are you making these decisions? And what was your desired outcome versus what actually happened? Okay, so what are we actually doing here? You know, and I think that level of examination sometimes is really uncomfortable for people. Um, and it's it's a skill that's learned over time, you know, but I think you what you were saying there, relating it back to, you're not just letting yourself down now, you're letting down other people. Like now you're affecting everybody because you didn't want to continue to prepare. And, and it's not just sports. We're talking, you know, in a football sense here, but it could be business. You know, it, it could be, it could be doctors. It could be whatever. It doesn't matter if people are depending on you 
and you decide that because you didn't get what you wanted in the moment, you're going to stop preparing. And then the moment comes and now the ship sinks because of you. Well, what was that decision-making process? What was going on there? And to me, that's just, you lack the self-awareness or lack the, not the, I don't want to say the, uh, I don't want to say the intent. You lack the ability to examine your decisions. And then, like you said, reapply the disciplines that, that got you to where you were. Um, and, and that's, that's so big. It's such a, it's, it's a learned lesson. It's like you said, it's like training a muscle. You have to do it. You have to get more and more comfortable in the discomfort of admitting like, okay, yeah, I gave into my desires and my impulses there. I gave into these things here. Okay. You know, and knowing yourself, I say all the time, know your demons, like become friends with your demons. Like I, I know for a fact, I have a lazy streak a mile wide, a mile wide. Funny story, coach, within the first week of us meeting, you called it out on me. You said, Hey, I can see it. Don't let it come out. And I'm like, no, you're right. I know that. I know that that's there. I've been battling that person since I'm 20 years old when I realized it. But what happens is if we don't become friends with that demon and we don't start to realize that that's there, it sneaks up on us because we stop keeping an eye on it, right? It's like when you have kids and they're running around the house and things go quiet for a second and you close your eyes and then you're like, oh, wait, what's going on? And all of a sudden a plate goes flying across the room and you're like, that's what happens when I don't look. That's what happens when I'm not paying attention, right? Same thing in our life. We have to manage our dark side and manage those those tendencies that we have um, because they do. They start to affect the rest of the people around us, which is which is unbelievably you know selfish in in and of itself, really. Big time. And you said it too. Our demons aren't who we are. Like they're aspects of us, and they're an aspect of us. You know, they're inclinations that we may have, right? They're self protect mechanisms that are dysfunctional that we have mm-hmm. in our lower nature, right? No, no doubt. The hard part is that people have a hard time looking at it because they start thinking it defines them or that's who I am. Or it, maybe if I hide it, it doesn't matter anymore. You just said it. You got to be friends with your demons. I'm, I'm going to admit my weakness. I'm going to say it because, listen, under pressure, it's going to become apparent to everybody. I'm not hiding anything. It's like with my kids. I'm up front because I go, hey, listen, in a minute, you're going to see dad got issues. Yeah. So, so there's no, no sense in me sitting there hiding so that when you get to be 16, 17, you, go, you know what I'm starting to realize? Dude, you're a big hypocrite. You know, you're a big big liar because I decide to hide these weaknesses I have. And you say demons, we hide our weaknesses. Yes. They, they leave us vulnerable and we don't want to be friends with them because we don't want to acknowledge that because we feel like, Hey, that makes me less than, or makes me inferior. That's just based on what you're looking at and your perspective. Mm-hmm. And if you let that define you, yeah, then it is. And I'm, listen, I struggle with that the most bitter envy, selfish ambition, constantly comparing myself. Am I better than you? Am I this? I got to be better. Dude. I have that in me a mile long. Mm-hmm. a mile I want to walk in the room I want to be better than everybody I'm better than you I, I got my my daughter one of my twins right first thing she always says is I when she walks in first when she meets somebody I can beat you <laughs> I'm like oh that's it you're not supposed to say that out loud honey that's what's on the inside of us but well you have to temper that that's a demon right that, that's a that, that's a weakness because what it does is reduce everybody down to a rival it doesn't want to see people get better it wants to promote itself over people it's part of, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to digress, but it's part of the issue in the country. It's, it's a power focus. How can I be better and maintain control and be over everybody? And you're inferior and I'm superior. Right. And you go, we got to fight those demons inside. Well, first step is going, Hey, I need to acknowledge this. I need to acknowledge the damage this can do. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not me because I can make decisions. I can discipline myself according to principle and I can move myself out. But the sobriety is this is always going to be there. So when it shows up, I just have to reassess, be committed to the, the evaluation process, dedication to the truth that I'm going to take the truth no matter how uncomfortable my truth is going to be of greater desire to me than my comfort right right (laughs) okay good so here's the thing I reassess I work back through it right and I bounce you nailed it with what you just said I go absolutely yeah be friends with your demons you go hey I'm not gonna you know (laughs) I'm not gonna feed you (laughs) no and you because you have to you have to discipline them right you have so like now, when people look at my schedule and, and, you know, people in my friend group and my family, they're like, dude, why do you literally schedule out? I mean, down to showers and meals are on my calendar. Like what time? They're like, why do you do this? Like, why do you schedule every minute of your day? And I'm like, because I have to, because if I don't and I allow myself freedom, I know what's going to happen. I know who's going to come roaring back from the dungeon. And it's going to be the dude that says, ah, you can put that off for a little bit. Eh, you can do, you know what I mean? And so for me, I have to do those things. I have to discipline myself to that level in order to keep that person away and keep that those demons at bay. And so 
you know, like you said, it's not a weakness. I admit it. I openly say it like, no, because if I'm left to my own devices, I'm, I'm going to be a bum. I'm, I'm not going to do what I want to do. And so I have to keep this level of discipline throughout. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see, you know, when you, when you can get a group of people that can discipline themselves like that, the type of atmosphere and the type of culture you can create, because it becomes really, really special. And I think you were part of one. I want to use that as kind of a segue. I think you were a part of that. And I, I'd love to hear some of the insight, like, when you, you were in a culture in the NFL that is one of the most researched and storied cultures in the world, um, you know, as far as what, what was going on with the 49ers at the time, and then obviously you guys were able to transition that down the road when you got to Bishop Gorman and kind of recreate something similar, you know, I just want to hear, like, what are some of the things that you pulled from that culture, and what are the, some of the things that you used then to build a culture like that at, at Bishop Gorman later? So a really good question. When I was at, when I came into the Niners, I had no idea because I'd come out of New Mexico State University, right? We were like four and whatever. And I think three and something. Uh, yeah, I think that was our record, but we weren't highly successful. When I got to the Niners, it hit me. I was like, whoa. And it was overwhelming because I went, this is a culture of incredible success. And as I started, I didn't understand it necessarily totally in the moment. I was just in awe of it. It was such an influential, influential culture that my study had, it, it changed me. And this, it, it was one of these catalysts that opened my eyes to things or it created a greater level of awareness. The level of detail, the attention to detail, the, now listen, the commitment to excellence was so high in that building that when you walked in, there was a level of pressure that you felt. And then imagine if you come from a team that's not very successful and you come in, they go, hey, we will not accept this, not one iota. What I realized was, it was funny because Coach Walsh was a, was a consultant at that point, right? But every time this dude would come in and talk, uh, Coach Trustman was the, was the offensive coordinator, but every time, every time Bill Walsh came in to talk, after the first time I heard him talk, I was like, hey, that's something else. Wow. And I'll never forget, I started taking notes. I was never a note taker or anything else like that. But he started talking, I'd take out my pencil and start going. He just said, man, there's an ebb and flow in the game. He just said, you have to understand the ebb and flow. You have to understand the nature of the game so it doesn't throw you on. Sometimes people are going to get the upper hand. That's just a moment. You can't get lost in it and this and that. He's walking through all these analogies. And I'm like, I'm just writing it down. I'm blown away. When he comes in, he would do some of the offensive breakdown and help out with different things. I'm listening to his perspective and I was like, this dude is unbelievable in terms of his understanding. This is what he, this is where it came from. This guy is the fulcrum that this, or the, the beginning, the, the foundational cornerstone of this whole thing. And, you know, he had built these standards of performance and he went through and he laid out everyone's responsibility. He laid out what it meant to be excellent at each person's job. I'm talking about the secretary. If you walked in the building, it didn't matter if it was a security guard in the front, the secretary upstairs, everybody lived by these standards of performance. And when he, and I didn't know this, you know, I, I learned it on the hindsight, but when I walked in, I went, this whole culture, there's not a person in here that is not bent and focused on this. Well, I walked in, Seaford had taken over, but Seaford knew and understood, hey, he did his spin and he was a phenomenal coach, but he kept those standards in place and it, and between him and the players that kept it spinning here's the thing he had instilled coach walsh had instilled such a a culture in that building the players internalized it they began to associate those standards with their success then they embodied internalized those standards and they embodied it and when you walked out it didn't matter you'd be on the field you're playing dude if you dropped a ball out there Guys are like, come on, man, can you catch? You're not gonna be here very long, man. And you're like, I dropped the ball. You can't drop a ball around here. When I say you go whole weeks, you wouldn't see the ball hit the ground. When they're throwing to different guys, you know, you've seen guys that I never seen drop a pass. I never watched them drop a ball once, a whole year, 20 weeks. I never seen them drop a ball. When I dropped two, I was like, they're like, you're about to get a roadmap and an apple and get sent down <laughs> the freeway here. <laughs> you better figure it out and I was like oh this is a standard of excellence I get it now and as I started to elevate it started to change my life I began to maximize in the facility I, be I began to maximize and I went oh you know what I get it now I'm capable I've just never pushed myself to this degree oh I can be and as they start to share things with me 
in the facility, I went, oh, this is the best I've ever been as a player. The plays I'm making, the things I'm doing, oh, this is the next, oh, you only get here when you go through this, pro that's what they build, that's what they're doing, that's what this is all about in here, that's why that expectation is so high. That's why everyone repeats the message. And Coach Walsh had built that through that organization to a level of excellence that you're talking to about Steve Young, Jerry Rice, you go through Merton Hanks, all these guys, I, I can go through the names. There's like eight all pros out there, right? Everybody had that thing internalized. Everybody preached it. If I didn't get to the sticks on first down, he didn't care. They didn't care who was covering me. This, Jerry Rice walked to me after, at, 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 at this game against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and it was Kevin Hardy. And he guy was a first-round pick, this and that. And was like, so? I run this route. I go four yards. We need a five for the first down. Who do you think first guy was that confronted me? Jerry. Dude <laughs> <laughs> came to the sidelines and was like, hey, man, you know where the sticks are? You know it's third down? Well, get to the sticks. Now, I don't care, man. Get to the sticks. <laughs> I was like, get to the sticks. Got, Got it. it. And listen, that was in a preseason game. That was the expectation. Like, we're in the preseason game. Do get to the sticks. Figure it out. And I was like, that standard, and it, I got indoctrinated because I started to realize, oh, this is how it is. I started to take notes. I started changing the way I did things. I became very studious. I was never a student before. I didn't really study things. I watched a gang of film, but I didn't study things. I started note-taking, studying, looking at things, looking at things from a much more cerebral context, and then applying it, understanding principle and going, oh, that's what directs us, Right. And it, it infused me. What was hard for me is when I walked out and I went to different organizations, right? I didn't see the same thing. I immediately became aware of this won't be successful because these things aren't here. I've been trained to understand this at this point. This has been, I've been indoctrinated with this. And the reality of the thing is that without these principles, these principles are what allow it to be in place. And the application of them, somebody's ability to be accountable, hold things accountable and do these other things are the things that ultimately do it. As we go through those things, and as I internalized those things with that group, what ended up happening was I went, okay, if you want to be successful, you have to live here. You have to be in this level of discomfort and you have to be okay with it. Listen, not because of the suffering in and of itself, but because of what it produces. Right. I have to be okay with what this suffering produces because I want what it produces. I just don't like the moment when I'm going through it. And again, Hebrews 12, down to verse 15, it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who are trained by it. And I realized, oh, these guys have gotten onto it. If you live like this, you go to the Super Bowl. If you live like this, you become team of the decade. If you can hold these principles, this is the kind of success you have over and over again. Okay, got it. And like I said, when I went to other organizations, if I didn't see it, I was like, oh, these guys, they're not committed to it the same way. This isn't going to produce the same. Oh, I get it. Okay. If you want the success, you need to apply it. So even going through high school, and, and train, you know, when I started to coach at high school, we got to Bishop Gorman, you know, to have a certain culture, have a certain success, like say football, you have to have a certain, you have to have a certain talent level. Your talent has to be there. Not like you go out with no talent. And <laughs> there's gotta be some talent. And there has to be a culture, right? And the culture has to be so intense that it indoctrinates the people that are in there with these principles of success, these standards of performance, whatever it is that you want to call it, to the degree that they embody it when they go out. And I, I understood this. So when I want, got to uh, Bishop Gorman, the thing I really identified with with Coach Sanchez was his intensity, his intent, how much I could see. This guy uh, wants to win. He'll self-correct. He'll do whatever he needs to do to get to this point and be successful, right? And he has an intensity and understanding of discipline that will allow it. He's going to crack the whip. This is going to be like, no, you do this or else you get the bleep out of here. And this is the deal. This is how it goes, man. You're winners win and winners find a way and so do losers. And alignment assignment technique for that, just being around you go. And I watched what that discipline did, right? And then when I was able to infuse and start going, hey, you build a culture of discipline, how you think and who you are as a person and the way that you live, not just here, but anywhere. And we fuse those things together we had a tremendous amount of success because what happened was the element on the outside, he took care of it. The element on the inside, I took care of where people's decision-making were in the thick of it. They're the heat of the battle. I'm done. They turn around and go, nah, man, if you want to become it, you hold to it. And this is just who we are now until that's who they were. And one of the best things I saw, one of the most phenomenal things I saw and was a part of was 
our final year, we're playing St. Thomas Aquinas and we was on our way to the third national championship. And coach Sanchez, the older brother had moved on to UNLV. I didn't go with him. And then, but uh, I was with coach Kenny Sanchez, his younger brother who took over the head job. And I'll never forget we're in the third overtime of this game. They had eight guys, division one guys on their D-line. We were used to gassing people who just had one D-line, right? And I was like, hey, guys, this week we ain't gassing this group. And they got eight division one guys. You're not going to gas them. They're just going to rotate every time the guy gets tired and a new monster's coming in. And when I say monster, I mean monster. And so the guys are like, okay, you just have to set your mind. It's going to have to be, you have to maintain the same effort of attention. You can't worry about outcome because there was a lot of losses and a lot of there was wins and losses of going back and forth like coach uh, Walsh said there's an ebb and flow that goes you can't get discouraged by it you just have to stay committed to the process like you talked about earlier so we get on this goal line and they had stuffed us we we're in a power plane you know the inch line you talking about resilience I had to walk off and go dude don't go into your cave of 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 self-condemnation we couldn't get one we couldn't get a half inch I'm useless I couldn't be a good coach I couldn't get this is terrible I missed. I should have coached him been on this thing. You know, so I was like, no, 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 don't, don't go. stay in here. So the guy, the, the athletes, what I seen with them when that happened was they didn't lose any resolve. There was no flicker in their intent. And we got in the situation where it's now it's the third overtime and we're on the goal line and we score and they go, Hey, go for two and take Martell's out there. He's going, no, no matter what, let's go for two. And I go, wow. Let's yeah, let's just end it, man. Whatever happens here happens. And I look at the line who hasn't had, who hasn't been overpowering people like they're used to. They didn't go that way. And when I looked at it, I went, hey, no matter what, these guys are set. They're committed no matter what to this process. And we're like, hey guys, we're gonna go for two. What do you got? And these dudes turned around without me saying anything. I said, I'm not gonna go in here and get everyone all hyped up and these other different things. The, the line, the O-line and them looked at each other in the, in the huddle and be like, hey, no matter what, everything you got, no matter what, no matter what. And the lines start going, yeah, no matter what. No, and there was a level of excitement and enthusiasm in it, a level of resolve that went, these dudes are elevating. We're in the third overtime and these guys are elevating because they're going, this is the moment. This is what we wait for. And they call the play. When I say in synchronization, everybody locks up with a guy. They run a toss. Everybody locks up a guy, verbatim, technique wise. Everybody's a perfect fit. Everybody gets to their position, right? One guy edged it who was a, a, was a defensive player, was an offensive player, who comes in and kind of issues, and Biagio goes right in. He'd have went in unblocked if, if the one guy would have squared up on the guy more, but, you know, he made him have an angle, so he comes off and he tackles Biagio, and Biagio goes in the end zone, and we go nuts. For me, the, the incredible part about that wasn't the win. It was seeing the embodiment of the principles and the perspectives that these guys had internalized. It was the culture that we had that I went, do you know how hard it is to build this type of culture? I've seen this at the Niners. Uh, we were over at these places, we tried to, but this is the time we actually did it. We actually built this culture and I go, this is a unique deal. And as a result, there was three national championships, right? We beat six top 20 teams in the same year where no one does that. No one plays those type of schedules, but I go, what was it? We became the elite of the elite. It was the talent that was there, but the talent was infused with a culture and a sense of discipline that allowed those guys to maximize who they were as individuals. And that's the thing I say to everybody over and over again is, hey, it's culture, 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 no matter what. And how do you build that? And what's the leadership that's needed on a daily basis to spin the wheel of that culture? Because it doesn't just stay rolling. Like if you build a, a solid culture, what happens is it starts to fuse it. It starts to um, motivate itself from the inside out. Like the players start driving. It's player driven. Now they do it. And that's what I saw at the Niners. I go, hey, the players run this team. It's their principle. It's who that, you know, they, they get it. They, they're going to stay the course here, no matter what these, they get how it's the association with the hard work. It was the same thing at Gorman. These guys come in. I'm just watching it spin. They go about it now. And I'm just in the background watching, watching them go to work because they realize, Hey, this is what we do. If we want to be great. And we're not going to be any other way. Cause that's what we've learned here. And this is what gets us here. So anyway, when you talk about that culture being around, when you see it, it's an amazing thing to be a part of. I really mean that. Absolutely. A very special thing. It's a very rare thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's why so many people, you know, chase it. But, but what I love about this is that we talk about elite cultures. So much of what you just said was the same messaging that I heard from uh, Coach Barham out of Ohio State. And it's like, success leaves clues like elite cultures have things in common there's just he was telling me a story about 
you know, Justin Fields and how other players were able to hold Justin Fields accountable. He didn't have to. Justin Fields is about to be a first round pick, but it was it was from the inside out. And he was talking about how closely their players guard that culture. And he said it's really cool to watch how they bring the new guys in and they almost vet them and they and they kind of go through and see, okay, can this guy drive the culture? Can okay, he's just gonna be a guy. We'll, we'll pour into him, but this guy, he's gonna drive the culture. He's gonna be one of those dudes. And so all of a sudden you're it starts to kind of you know, it's like cyclical, like it starts to recharge itself. And that's why you see like, like you guys had a Gorman, like Ohio State has, like Alabama has, it doesn't graduate. It just keeps going because it's passed down from generation yes. to generation. And it's like you said, it's internalized. It's who they are. And and that's, that's so special, man. It, it's so, it's so cool. I get chills talking about that stuff because you know, as a coach, how hard it is to build. And so for you, you know, being on the other side, you get to step back for a second and you're like, this is what all those years of, of work was for. This is what all those confrontations and managing relationships and managing vulnerabilities and managing insecurities and developing kids that at one point I wasn't sure if he was even going to stay on the team. And now here, you know what I mean? And you see all this come to fruition and it's like, yes, there it is. And then the players take it and they continue to build upon it. And that, that is so special. Um, and I think that's every coach's dream, you know, ultimately is what, what you want to build, but it's just, the work and the daily intention that it takes to get there um, is, is where it is. So when people say the devil's in the details, I mean, it, it truly is. And, and guys, if you haven't seen coach Manny coach, go on Netflix, check out Snoop and son, check out uh, for uh, what is it under the lights or Friday night lights. You'll be one. Okay. You'll hear the attention to detail that separates okay, good from great. And, and that's, that's what it is, man. That's the separation because it, it's, it's the little things. It's the little tiny details in the culture and in the leadership and in the way that you do things like you said right there on that play, how many coaches would say they were in perfect fit? Most coaches would just say, no, we blew them off the ball. We got to the end zone. You weren't looking at that. You were looking at no guys, our guys were hand placement was perfect. Right. When we played Ohio state, when, when me and you were coaching at UNLV, what was the thing that we noticed? Their guys didn't miss with their hands, right? Their, their defensive line didn't miss with their hands. And then we, we wanted to dig in and find out why. And you found out, right. They do hands every day. It, it never gets skipped. It's never overlooked because it's a detail that builds and builds upon itself. And eventually it manifests and you don't know when, and you don't know where, but when it does, it's special, man. So that that's awesome. Coach. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I want to be, want to be aware of your time. I know you're a family man. I want to make sure you got time with your family. Oh yeah. You can hear the house start to wake up. Here. <laughs> Listen to manuals. It's it a goes, beautiful it thing, man. Big. They wake up big. They wake up with a lot of energy. I'm going to shoot one wild card at you here and then we'll get you out of here. So you can take care of the kids and have time with the family before you get off to work. Um, big one for you here. What does the word legacy mean to you? And what do you want your legacy to be? Man, you know, the, the, the big, so what legacy means to me, it's, it's, it's what you leave behind, right? It's the impact that you left behind. It's your ripple through history in terms of the impact you've had, right? You ripple on the, the water of life and when you say, hey, what's the legacy? There's two things. One, when I, I look at my family, one of the things that's been helping me a lot is I look at my kids and I go, hey, my kids are my, my biggest legacy, right? And understanding that when you say legacy, legacy is what you leave behind. And if you, what's your legacy? Hey, when he came in, uh, this guy gave everything he had. He loved people deeply. He had a genuine interest, right? He had a genuine interest in people, genuine interest in seeing people maximize. And at the end of the day, uh, there's no question in any of our minds or hearts uh, how he felt, what his passion was, and what his purpose was when he was here. And the legacy for me, big picture wise, is that those things, those principles that are in me, that they, that they get passed on. Those are the things that have the greatest value. Those are the things that have, you know, we're all in, we're significant in terms of what we embody in these other different things and, 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 and how we can go about our life and having this impact. But at the end of the day, the principle is the thing that protects people. And the legacy is, Hey, he's passing on an example of living out these principles, right? That we can look to, not that he's perfect, not that it, it you know, he, he doesn't mess up because we know he's got a ton of issues, but that 
the best he could, he held to these principles. And as a result, uh, I've taught others to do the same. Absolutely. Coach, that's, that's awesome, man. Again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. We're, we're going to have you back on because I know there's there's a lot more that we can dive no into. No worries. Um, this was a phenomenal conversation, guys. If you get a chance, go back and, and listen to this one again because it, it's something that you know, you'll need your reminders of. And I know when I need my my weekly or, or monthly shot of truth, I, I know who I need to call. And that's always Coach Manny. Um, he's going to kick it to you, really. He's going to let you know, hey, you're being self-indulgent on this one. You got you to gotta lock it up and, and get disciplined. So, Coach, again, thank you so much. Um, for everybody listening, please like, share, leave a review, do all that stuff so we can continue to bring you this content for free. Um, it's been an absolute blast to, to connect with these leaders over the last couple of weeks, and we, we hope to continue to build this platform. So thanks again, Coach, and we'll connect soon. Kit, love you, man. Glad to be connecting. Appreciate your bunch. Thanks for having me on.